Hello, girls, gays, and days, and welcome back to another week of Pride Month with Exhaling Words, the language podcast where I just talk and we kiki for 30 to 60 minutes, who knows, this week, and you listen. For those of you who don't know, my name is Aaron, and I'm your host. I am a queer person, and this is Pride Month 2021. I wanted to do something special for Pride this year, Um, and if you haven't listened to last week's episode where I sort of talked about my history as a queer person and as a language learner, um, please go back and listen. Maybe you'll get something out of it. But yeah, just uh, the same sort of caveat goes. The content during this month is really focused towards queer people. I'm speaking to other members of the LGBTQIA plus community. If you are not a member of that community, by all means, you are welcome to be here and listen. But again, this content is designed for queer people this month. And so if it doesn't resonate with you, if it doesn't interest you, if you don't understand it, I'm sorry. Um, I'm not actually sorry, but you know, I'm sorry I didn't make content for you this month, though I make content for you and everyone the other 11 months of the year. So queers, where are we? What are we doing? Last week I talked about me and I talked about sort of my journey as a queer person and my experience with language and being queer and living in Western Asia and sort of how do we balance our queerness with our language learning with our feelings about politics or society, um, depending on how the cultures around our target languages feel about queer people. And... I talked a little bit last week about my transition from male to female. I was assigned male at birth and sort of how that also played a part of my language learning journey and sort of adjusting the way that I spoke around myself, both in terms of like things like grammatical gender, as well as, you know, just, I don't know, other stuff. (laughs) So this week I really wanted to kind of hone in on that, um and talk about sort of gender and language and language learning and, you know, sort of just all of this. I think the most requested topic when I asked people what they wanted to hear me talk about during Pride Month was non-binary language and non-gendered language and sort of just questions of gender and language and language learning as a queer person. And so I want to talk about that today. I want to create a couple of caveats before I go into it, just so that we're all on the same page. Um, One, some of my points from today, I'm taking notes from my talk at Women in Language in 2020. So if you were there for that, I apologize if there's some repetition or if I use similar examples. It was just rather than doing all of the research all over again um, and build something entirely new, it's just easier to sort of pull from that. What I want to focus on today, however, is really the question of language and gender in terms of grammatical gender and gender identity and less about questions of women's speech patterns, which is something that I sort of got into and how we convey our gender in other ways, um, particularly for women, which is stuff I got into during that talk. But today I really want to focus on like language and gender in a very sort of traditional sense. However, I don't want to focus on just the traditional thing of like, what are non-binary pronouns in other languages? I I mean, part of me just wants to talk today. If we're being like 100% honest, I just, there are things I feel about this topic 
that I recognize might not be the most popular opinions, but I do want them to be put out there. And that's where my second caveat is. I just want to put forth before I start today that I'm going to say some things today and none of it at all is like sort of anti non-binary people or anti trans people. Obviously like I'm a trans person and I very much support my non-binary siblings. But as a linguist, I recognize a certain level of pragmatism and sort of going back to last week's topic of, we have to consider things about our personal safety and things about kind of dealing with the societies in which we are operating when it comes to our target languages. So I realize that there are a couple of things I might say today that you might not want to hear and you might disagree with, and that's perfectly fine. We're allowed to disagree. They are my sort of personal and also somewhat professional opinions. And I will always sort of follow them with, you know, this doesn't mean that you have to do that. It's just a question of this is something that I think is a practical approach or something that we need to just sometimes recognize that the world is not where we want the world to be yet. By all means, let's fight for that change and let's, you know, work towards it. But sometimes we have to be patient and we have to continue to struggle against the societies in which we live. Okay, so I just want to put that out there. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give away where I'm going with some of this. But I know that um, some of the things that I say sometimes people don't 100% agree with because I'm very practical. And I will I will say that to a fault is that I very much believe in sort of personal liberation and personal freedom and all the things that um, we as a community fight for. But I also recognize the need for pragmatism at times and the need for compromise and patience because unfortunately the world is not what we want it to be. And even in my lifetime, it has changed so much. And so I hope it continues to change just as much in the rest of my lifetime and in the generations to come. And it's our struggle and our fight that will bring that change. But that does not mean that we should not have patience or that we should not understand the places where we are in the present day okay let me stop there and let's get into this oh so gender 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 is always the fun thing to deal with so let's talk about gender from a linguistic perspective what is gender like linguistically speaking when we talk about gender what is it and what are we talking about I think we see a lot of really bad memes on the internet of things like, you know, languages fighting about like, no, table is feminine, no, table is masculine, no, door is feminine, no, you know, dog is a boy, or like like this sort of oversimplification of what is grammatical gender, and this representation of grammatical gender as if it's a societal understanding, like, I, I mean... When we say la mesa in Spanish, nobody's running around tacking vaginas onto tables. Nobody's going like, this thing is female and thus it makes it biologically female and thus we have to treat it as a woman or whatever. One, I mean, that whole example is an oversimplification of gender just in general. But it's just literally like, it's not what people mean. It's just, it, it isn't. So let's go back. What is gender? 
Gender as a word comes from the Latin word genus, which means a kind or a sort of something, which goes back to a proto-Indo-European proto word, genhos, which means race, which goes back to the root gen, which means to beget. All gender is, when we speak about grammatical gender, is a type of classification that certain nouns that act a certain way get classified together. And then what theoretically happens over time is we recognize that some of the nouns in this group, let's say some of the nouns in group one, also represent or are signifiers for a biologically male person. And again, I know this, all of this can be caveated with like, well, I'm biologically male, but I'm a woman. But we're going back in history thousands of years, if not millennia. Okay. So let's just, we're going to deal with a, with a boring binary idea of gender and sex right now. Okay. And so then people say, oh, well, here's all these biologically male things and they act this way as nouns and nouns that are similar to them also act this way. So they're also male or masculine. Same thing. A lot of these things that refer to biologically female things end in A, you know, for a bad example, but a valid example. And they all behave in this way, grammatically speaking. And so we're going to call them feminine because some of them are biologically female things and thus they are feminine. That's all it is. And even that, to be honest, is still somewhat of an oversimplification because masculine and feminine are not the only sort of, quote, grammatical gender systems out there. There are languages with masculine, feminine, and neuter. There are languages where they recognize that there is a difference between the way masculine animate nouns work and the way masculine inanimate nouns work. There are languages where these sort of traditional three gender systems has fallen back into things like animate versus inanimate or common, which is usually the masculine and the feminine falling together and neuter, which is the neuter. Um, you can look at like North Germanic languages for examples of this. But if we go outside of Indo-European languages, what else do we find? We find in a lot of languages noun classes in some linguistic studies of some of these like uh especially like in indigenous languages of the americas linguists traditionally european linguists have imposed terms like masculine versus feminine on top of these systems but the problem is that in a lot of these systems there are also more than just two genders there's three there's four there's five there's six it just is fully dependent on language in some languages if we're calling all of these genders we can talk about upwards of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 genders. Now, typically, we don't call those genders. We call those noun classes. Um, so, for example, in Bantu languages, we talk about different noun classes. But when we're talking about categorization of nouns, what's the difference between calling that a gender versus a class? It's the same thing. The difference is the fact that when we live in a society that tells us that there are two genders or maybe three, a masculine and a feminine, a other, a neuter, when we see things where we have 12 classifications, our brains go to, well, I can't be gender because there's only two, maybe three. 
But who's to say that's not gender? I mean, this is the whole concept is that the terminology gender and masculine, feminine, neuter is nothing more than just terminology. It wouldn't be any different if I said in Spanish, there are nouns of type one and nouns of type two. And this is how they function. And adjectives that describe them get this. And it's funny because like anywhere else, we have no problem approaching it this way. So for example, like in French, when, when we study French in the United States, we learn that there are ER verbs, IR verbs, and RE verbs. That's, that's how we learn to classify these verbs is by their endings. When you open up French grammatical textbooks for French speakers, they're still sectioned as these are ER, IR, and RE, but they're not named ER verbs, IR verbs, and RE verbs. They're named class one, class two, class three, or type one, type two, type three. And this is all gender is. When we say masculine, feminine, and neuter, when we say animate or inanimate, when we say common or neuter, all we're doing is putting arbitrary words on top of a categorization system. But what happens, and this is where the struggle becomes, is we then allow that arbitrary choice in words to dictate how we view all of it. And this is the thing, is that when we go to things like la mesa in Spanish is feminine, that table is feminine in Spanish, nobody, I think, in early forms of Spanish, or maybe this goes back to Latin, I don't know the word for table in Latin, or where mesa comes from. Well, it, I think it comes from mesa. Anyways, I don't think any of these speakers were going, yep, yep, table's definitely a girl, definitely a girl, definitely has more feminine traits. You know, like, no, that's not... These, again, were arbitrary classifiers. But now that these are the terms that we used to classify, we see studies that have resulted in evidence that says that, well, people like speakers of Spanish might describe tables with more feminine adjectives and not grammatically feminine, but nicer sounding adjectives. So maybe a masculine word they'll describe as like, I don't know, as as rough or, or, or sharp or whatever. And then a feminine word that'll describe as soft or as gentle, you know, they'll use societally sort of stereotyped perceptions of what is masculine and feminine to describe a noun because of the arbitrary word that we have used to create its category. And this is where we get like, when you fall into this hole, you realize the obscenity of all of it. It just, it doesn't make sense. Like, like literally what are we doing? And this is, this is, part of why I get annoyed by this whole conversation. Not about like the conversation of like pronouns or whatever, because that's a whole separate thing. But when people want to fight about like, oh no, this word is this, like this is a boy, this is a girl, or this word is masculine, this word is feminine, like just whatever quote gender a language categorizes a word as, it means nothing. And, and I think this is especially well demonstrated when we say that certain suffixes get certain genders in a lot of languages. So, for example, in German, diminutive nouns are neuter. Just rule. Diminutive nouns are neuter. And so, what is a wonderful example of a typically female or feminine thing that is in the diminutive, which is neuter, das Mädchen, the girl. But it's neuter. Our girl is neuter. And that's, like, like that's, that's literally the point. Like, I literally, I just, I feel like I have nothing to say after that. <laughs> and so, so, so to me, like, that's, 
the irony and the obscenity of this system that people want to fight about and give all these examples to. And, and of course, like more fundamentalists will talk about like, oh, well, this is inherent in our system. No, no, it's, it's, it's all just arbitrary. I mean, if we really want to get into it and go like, let's go all the way back to like freaking so sir or something like words in general are arbitrary. They're just science. They're literally just signs to point to concepts and, and we just agree on all the signs. But I think that's part of the fun with gender is that we don't have to agree on the signs. And this is where we can get into questions of pronouns and I'll get to there later. I promise we're getting there, but yes. So pronouns. And this is, I think, I think this is where everybody wants us to go because it's pride month and we want to talk about non-binary identities and, and gender neutral language and non-binary pronouns. And so like, this is the thing is that this is an important topic and this isn't just important because of non-binary identities. This is also because of things like being inclusive. How do we find more inclusive language to, um, to sort of embrace all spectrums and all uh, perceptions and all manifestations of one's gender in our society? How do we better include everyone and how do we talk about this? Um, but th this is also where I struggle because I don't want to say there have to be limits, but we have to consider so many different parts that it becomes difficult. And so some of the ways I break down these examples are, are the following four sort of things to consider is, number one, how do we balance identity versus pragmatism? How do we say that I, for example, might identify as a non-binary person, but there has to be a pragmatic use of language. And this is where I know some people might disagree with me. But there was a wonderful book when I was a child called Frindle. And this kid performs an experiment where he decides that he's going to just start referring to a pen as a Frindle. And it's like this thought experiment of how do we change language? I need to find a copy of it because I always think it's a great like idea and experiment to play with. And I brought it up and people have never heard of this book, but I loved it as a kid. And so I need to find it and reread it and see if it still resonates with me as an adult. But pretty much the whole point is words are arbitrary. And so where does the word pen come from? Why do we call it a pen? Why can't we call it say Frindle? And this is where I think the struggle around non-binary identity identities is sometimes is that Though we accept that every person has their own perception of their own gender and they have the full freedom and right and autonomy to present that how they want and to live their life how they want. And though we want to respect all people's pronouns and the way that they identify, there is a struggle at times and not a struggle ideologically, but just a practical struggle, linguistically speaking, of how to best do that. Languages evolve naturally. And so languages have systems of pronouns. And languages over time have created new pronouns or readapted other pronouns or sort of morphed pronominal forms in certain languages to match the growing use of non-binary language in their societies. And that's where, you know, we get things like uh, a, a singular they or sort of what people refer to often as like neo-pronouns. So like Spanish, the pronoun ella or the French word yel um, or the Swedish, the very famous Swedish, Swedish example of hen. And 
And that's sort of very pragmatic from a linguistic perspective, is that these are words that exist or words that are similar to pre-existing pronouns in the language that have been introduced into the language or derived from other linguistic forms to mark non-binary. However, and, and I've realized that saying this, I risk sounding like a fundamentalist or a right-winger or something, there is something to be said about the struggle around creating completely new pronouns. And so if you pick sort of an arbitrary word and say this is your pronoun, and I know it's a stupid example, but some, like, let, let's say frindle. Frindle no longer means pen. Frindle is the third-person singular non-binary pronoun. There is a struggle there to introduce that into the language and be, make it become accepted. And not just widespread, but even on an individual level, is that telling somebody, please refer to me as Frindle, and asking them to do that, it takes an effort. And again, I caveat that with, that doesn't mean that people shouldn't try. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to push society. I'm just saying that this is an issue that we need to recognize as people who want to use non-binary language. How do we balance our identities with also finding a pragmatic use of language and something that feels natural? Similarly, I think there's also the balance of how do we adapt pre-existing grammar, but also find complete neutrality? So for example, sometimes when we look at examples of neo-pronouns, they look very much like gendered pronouns. A really common example is something like Zizer or Zizim. And by putting the Z instead of the H, we get something more neutral. It's not he, it's not she, it's Z. But when we follow it into the oblique form and you either get Zer or Zim, Zer mimics the form of her and Zim mimics the form of him. And so people might hear Z and Zim but it might read as, okay, this is non-binary, but it might read as maybe being transmasculine and non-binary because it echoes him in somebody's head. Like, that's what it's going to remind you of because we know the word him. Similarly, Zer echoes the word her in somebody's head. And so maybe Zer is good for a trans-feminine non-binary person. But if a non-binary person is going for full gender neutrality and really wants something that doesn't mark either in any way shape or form what is the best option for them i don't know what the answer to that is but i'm just saying this is something to be considered as well is that okay we we want to be pragmatic maybe and come up with forms that are very much grammatically functional within our language but how do we do that without creating neo pronouns that very much sound like already gendered pronouns how do we find something that's fully neutral. Personally, that's why I like they. They has existed as a singular pronoun for a while. It already exists in English. We use it all the time. Somebody just the other day was like, I don't know. It's like a struggle for me. And, and it's not grammatically correct. And I was like, if I talk to you about a friend and I have not mentioned their gender, what do you say? You ask me, what is their name? What do they do? When we don't know who an individual is, we have no problem using they in the singular. And by the way, it's not even in the singular. We're still saying they are. We're still, it's grammatically plural. It's just referring to something singular. So how much harder is it to then say, like, I know who this person is, and I know maybe how they present, but they prefer non-binary pronouns, and just keep saying they? I'll be honest, like, 
the first time I do it with somebody, especially somebody who I'm used to using a different pronoun for, it is a little bit different. But it's not impossible. It's not grammatically uncomfortable. I don't feel like I'm messing up my English. It's natural. It still is a pragmatic form within the English language. So this is where I sort of just I don't understand I don't understand why people don't get this. Anyways. Okay, so those are our two things so far is identity versus pragmatism and then also grammatical adaptation versus complete gender neutrality. Another really common one, and this is less about non-binary language about an individual, but more about inclusive language is what is written versus what is spoken. So for example, a really common replacement for Latino or Latina is people use the at sign, the aroba. Um, and so this is fine. If I see it, I know this is a gender neutral form or it's a fully inclusive form for masculine and feminine, which again, maybe not fully inclusive because we haven't specifically included non-binary identities. But how do I read that? How do you read an arroba at the end of a word? How do you read outside at the end of a word? And again, I'm not saying this to be mean or to, to, to challenge its validity. I'm just saying it's a practical question. You know, sometimes we also see forms that have like apostrophe E in French to include the feminine form for the E or O apostrophe A. Um, I do find it interesting so that like in in Portuguese, people will use the O slash A, not apostrophe, slash, O slash A. And that's how they write it. But then they pronounce it O, like the O aberto. And so you can have cansado, you can have cansada, and then you can have cansado, which is cansado slash A. But you would pronounce it cansado, like it, like it's the O with the accent on it, which is interesting. Or in Mandarin Chinese, you have the pronoun ta, but you can write it with the man root or the man radical. You can write it with the woman radical, or you can write it with, I think it's like a thing radical is what that one's called. Which one do you use? They're all pronounced ta, and that's great. So when we're in spoken language, you don't have to worry about gender. But when you're writing, you have to immediately pick one. And so I think this is kind of the issue here is like, so we have a written form that works, but it doesn't work in spoken. Or we have a spoken form that works, but that sound reflects multiple written forms that are innately gendered. How do we, how do, we do this? So that's, you know, that's sort of another aspect of the struggle. And then the final one, and this is something I really sort of want to dive into more today somewhat, is the question of indigenous versus foreign. One of the struggles that I find with gender-neutral language is that sometimes it's not being created by native speakers or it's not being created by queer people within that community. And though our intent might be good to create non-binary language or gender-neutral language, as non-native speakers, we face certain hurdles in terms of both acceptance as well as accuracy when doing this. Now, sometimes the debate is also internal. So, for example, we a lot of people use the, the, the term Latinx. And I've, I've seen plenty of Latinx or Latino or Latina or Latine people here in the United States use Latinx. And they are, you know, they're representing their own ethnicity. They are native speakers of Spanish. That's their place to then use that. But I've seen similarly pushback from others within the community 
that say that Latin X feels like an anglicism, feels like a form of linguistic colonialism, that, you know, this isn't, this isn't indigenous to the Spanish language. We should be doing something that exists within the Spanish language. So a form like Latine, where that A can sort of be more of a gender neutral, as opposed to this X, which it's like, how do you pronounce this? What do you do with it? You know, it looks like like this sort of Americanism of just putting X to say like it's, it's neither nor or something. And so some people complain about that. Similarly, I love the ingenuity of the non-binary individual who came up with the sort of Hebrew non-binary forms or the Hebrew sort of gender neutral forms, but they're not a native speaker of Hebrew. And there's been pushback from people in Israel, including queer people, so I've been told, that say like this isn't, these aren't valid forms. Personally, I look at the forms and I go, they make sense. I think they're fair, at least in the singular. I think in the plural, they're I don't know. They're just, they're rough. The idea was that in the singular, you know, uh, no ending is masculine, ah is feminine. So let's find something in the middle. So we take a, so like Talmid, student, Talmida, student, feminine, Talmide, student, non-binary, you know, or similarly, like the second person pronouns are ata for masculine and at for feminine. So let's have ate for for non-binary or the third person singular is who for masculine he for feminine so let's have hey for non-binary like sort of these sort of a suffixes to create the non-binary forms and i like that i think that that's fair it doesn't feel weird in hebrew again i'm not a native speaker but it doesn't feel forced we have our forms we have et forms which are feminine and we have zero ending so really eh it's not pushing it. It's just, it's a hey at the end of the word, but a different vowel in front of it. So I don't think that that's that bad. My struggle personally is the plural feels weird because the plural is a combination. The plural uses both the masculine followed by the feminine. So just like before we had talmide, but then the plural is talmidimot, where talmidim is masculine plural and talmidot is feminine plural. Now we're just going to put im and ot at the end of the word and get talmidimot. It doesn't sound awful. It's just, it, it's very long. It's extra syllables. You know, it's just the question of like, is this the most natural form? And granted, this this is also a struggle because I think American Jews have a very different kind of relationship with the Hebrew language because it's taught from a very young age. We're not native speakers in Hebrew, but everybody usually studies a certain amount and it's part of our religious and for some people an ethnic identity. And so... I don't want to say that that the individual who created this, you know, it's it's not right because they were an outsider. They are an insider in different ways than a native speaker would be, but they're still not a native speaker of Hebrew. And so it's just, I don't know, it's a rough example. But I think this this sort of struggle of what is indigenous innovation versus what is foreign innovation is one of the biggest struggles with non-binary language in general especially when it comes to sort of non-binary pronouns stuff like that but also like inclusive language in the plural to talk about like hey everyone instead of hey you guys instead of you know stuff like that how do we create more inclusive language but also how do we create language that represents non-binary identities and i just feel like this struggle of is this a foreign innovation as an outsider who is non-binary and learning this language or is this an indigenous innovation 
by a community of non-binary people who are native speakers who are coming up with ways in their own native language to refer to themselves. And I think that some of this goes back to what I was talking about last week. Last week, when I was talking about one of the benefits of studying a target language, even if you think that its speakers or the society where it's spoken is not accepting of you and your queer identities, is that there are queer people there and you can find them and interact with them and see, you know, what kind of art and culture and music they're making. Um, You can be supportive of them if they're struggling with, you know, their own societies, whatever it may be, that language is a way for queer people to communicate and interact. And so often, queer conversation and queer dialogue and queer communication happens in English. You know, this is something that I struggled with when I wrote, so I wrote my undergraduate thesis about homosexuality and queer culture in the Arab world and in the larger Islamic world. And one of the things I talked about is the struggle of language, like language doesn't even exist. And so, or the language that does exist is so riddled with negative connotations because of history and because of terminology that it's like, you know, how do we use this language in a more appropriate way? How do we reappropriate this language for ourselves? Like, you know, like how now in English I'm using queer as a completely normal word to refer to all of us, but queer used to be a slur. Queer for some people still is a slur. They just don't like it. You know, similarly, there's a word in Arabic, shev, which means a deviant or queer or a pervert or something. I used to know someone who, who that's how they described themselves. They wouldn't say like, you know, anamithli, a jins or anamithli, like I'm gay. There's a shev. And they were one of those people that was really like sort of into counterculture and queer culture and sort of all of that. And so for them, it was a good identity for them. They didn't mind being called Shev because everything in their life was counter to traditional Arab culture. And so being called Shev wasn't offensive to them. It actually felt right. But that's not how everybody feels. Some people hear Shev and they cringe. I've said it now several times and I'm sure at least a few of you are like, oh, why are you calling it like people that? And I get that, you know, that's part of the struggle. You know, we have this issue with terminology around trans people about is it trans, transgender, transsexual, um, the, the T word, which I won't say because a lot of people don't like it. I don't even really use it. But like, personally, I'm not upset by the word transsexual. I think it marks something very specific because there are trans people underneath the larger trans or transgender umbrella who choose not to physically transition, and then there are people who do. And theoretically, that is what transsexual is. You are transitioning, you are changing, you are moving across, what the trans prefix means, from a sex to another sex. And so it's not an inaccurate term. However, transsexual is a word that was used both derogatorily, it was used before we understood the difference between sex and gender. It was used in a time that was not great for trans folk in the U.S. or in the West or just generally anywhere. And so it comes with a lot of baggage and people don't like it. But that's that's a personal feeling. You like the word, you don't like it. I, I don't mind it. Like, I don't care. It's not a word that I use, like, to, even to describe myself, really. But... It doesn't offend me. Like, it's not inaccurate. You know, it's it's one of those very neutral words for me. But I recognize that for some people, it might be a word that carries a lot of negative connotations and baggage for them, and they don't want to use it, and that's fine. And that's sort of how it is with some of these other words. Like, I can't imagine somebody in Arabic wanting to use lutli. Like, lutli, just, it, it's a sodomist. It, it, 
it comes from the word lot. Like, you're of the people of lot. There's no good way to, like, spin Luthi unless you... I mean, I used to make jokes about sodomy, but we probably shouldn't. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, it's not a great word to use, sure. But but then we get into things like some people say gay. Some people say misleagents or just mythly. But misleagents is just a calc on homosexual. That's literally what it is. Mythly, homo, alike, similar, whatever. Gents, sex. Misleagents, homosexual. That's literally all it is. It's a calc on either the German, which is where homosexual really originally comes from, even before it enters English, or from the English, homosexual. And this is part of the struggle around sort of finding good language for non-binary identities in target languages is that so much of queer communication is done in English and so I think it hinders some of the development of good queer language in target languages. That being said, the development of queer language, listen to me please, the development of queer language in a language is the right and responsibility of queer people who are native speakers of that language. Period. End of discussion. And I say that to myself. I consider myself, and I've talked about this before, a, a, a speaker of Spanish, a speaker of French, a speaker of Arabic. I am not a native speaker, but I'm not a student. And so I do speak with authority about these languages, both as somebody who has taught them as well as somebody, you know, I am a speaker. So I will say things like, we say this, we don't say that. I don't speak for all Spanish speakers or all Arabic speakers or all French speakers, but I've reached a point in my ability with these languages that I have a certain level of authority to speak about them. All of that said, it is still not my place to create language and terminology for people in these languages. I'm not a native speaker. And at the end of the day, native speakers understand nuance and connotation and stuff. And so if we're trying to find good gender neutral language, maybe I have an idea. Maybe I want to share it with a native speaker friend. But if they say that sounds stupid, it's not stupid. Period. End of discussion. They are the native speaker. They have the authority there. And I don't. I say this from a place of love because I have seen people do this, not always around queer language, but in like other situations, I have seen outsiders, typically white people, <laughs> want to go in and change the way a language works because they think it needs to be changed or they think that they can contribute something, whether it's, I don't think this works well. What if we did this and let me recreate this or something? No, not your place. I want to create this term or whatever. What is it? No not your place. I want to see if I can come up with like this sort of pigeon jargon or whatever to combine these two languages of these two people that are fighting and, and that'll promote peace between, no, not your place. I will be the first person to say that even non-native speakers of a language, when we, re when we reach a very high level of proficiency, we do have a level of authority to speak about that language. We have a right to teach, all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, we are not native speakers. We do not understand what it's like to be lived and raised in that culture or to understand the nuance that just naturally comes with being a native speaker. And so some things have to be done by the indigenous community. And so when it comes to questions of things like 
non-binary language. We need to look to queer people in these languages and see what they are creating. And we need to be respectful of them when we are trying to interact with that. Now, that being said, sometimes we have to find that. And maybe sometimes the non-binary language doesn't exist. And I think this is where we go back to pragmatics and the struggle of this is a society we live in, whether or not we like it. Sometimes you might not find gender-neutral language in your target language. Now, granted, you might not be looking hard enough. You might need somebody who is a more advanced speaker than you or a native speaker to help you find what is going on in the queer community in that language. However, there may still be moments where you're not going to find anything, as unfortunate as that may be. And this is where I say we have to be patient. And we can fight, and we can struggle, and we can move forward and support our queer siblings, but we might have to be patient. And if you're a non-binary person that's studying a language that doesn't really have non-binary language, you can interact with the community and you can make those suggestions. But at the end of the day, you are not the authority to create new terminology. Now, after that very sort of somber moment, um, I do want to take a moment to point out that obviously not all languages have grammatical gender. Funny enough, this is something that gets pointed out to me a lot because I speak Persian and I've studied Turkish and other Turkic languages, and none of these languages have grammatical gender. And again, some languages might not have grammatical gender, but they have pronouns that are gendered, like, you know, English. But some languages have nothing. So Persian has no grammatical gender, but it also only has one pronoun. Just one first person, one second person, one third person pronoun in the singular. Similarly, Turkish, same thing, one pronoun. All the Turkic languages, one pronoun. And so, what do we do with these? I mean, I don't know. Like, like, like. let's be honest. Like, We don't have to deal with the question of grammatical gender. But if we're being really fair, all of these languages are spoken in countries that have very traditional understandings of gender. Some of which I'd even go as far as to say not just traditional, but fundamentalist sort of tradi- like standards of gender where you can be punished for not conforming to those standards of gender, whether that's legally or just being a societal outcast or something. And so, okay, yeah, it's great. Persian doesn't have grammatical gender. Turkish doesn't have grammatical gender. I love Persian. I love Iranian history. But being a queer person in Iran, it's not a great situation. Let's be honest. Like, just 100% real. It's not great. And so... While, yes, we can sort of be happy that, like, hey, yeah, Persian doesn't have grammatical gender, now we're facing other struggles that comes with dealing with the Iranian government or certain parts of Iranian society. And this is a different type of struggle. There's also still other things, like certain terms are still very much implicating gender in languages like Turkish or Persian. You know, obviously there are words, like there's girl and boy and man and woman, like terms that refer to gender. But there are also like things like occupations that often imply gender. Again, it's not a grammatical thing, but it's just what other biases exist within language in terms of word choice or whatever are still very much an issue, even when you're dealing with a language that doesn't have grammatical gender. So while it might be fun to sort of praise a language, you're like, look, this one doesn't have grammatical gender, makes it easier to learn, or you don't have to worry about like if you're non-binary or something, there's still going to be other issues. 
you know, no language is perfect. If any Esperantist comes for me and tries to fight me and say that Esperanto is a perfect language, I will block you. No. No language is perfect. <laughs> and, you know, I know society is perfect. So we're going to struggle with these things and balancing all of them as we go about language learning and as we go about interacting with people and as queer people while we go through the language learning process. Honestly, I have lots of examples of non-binary language that I get into, but to be fair, they all exist on the internet. If you can't find one, please, by all means, reach out to me. Generally, if you Google like non-binary language in Arabic, non-binary language in Hebrew or French or Spanish or whatever, you'll find plenty of things talking about this topic and you can find the specific examples. And today I didn't want to just give you a list of here's all the non-binary pronouns in all the different languages I speak. You know, that is out there on the internet for you to search and find. What I wanted to get into with you guys today is how do we go through the process of engaging with non-binary language as queer people, and especially for those of us who are learning these languages as outsiders and foreigners in a respectful way, both in terms of respecting cultural values and norms while still respecting ourselves as queer people, and also respecting native speakers who are the larger authority on creating terminology and whatnot. As always, if you have any questions about today or if you have any comments or anything, if you want to tell me about your experience as a non-binary person, please, by all means, share it with me. I love to hear your stories. I love to talk with you all and talk about these topics because um, I love them as a queer person. Again, please stay tuned throughout this whole month. We have one more episode of just me talking, and then Marissa from Multilingual Marissa and I are going to get together on an episode, and we're going to do a live, and we're going to do, spoiler alerts, some form of queer language learning hangout thing. So stay tuned for information on that. It'll be coming in the next week or two. Um, and it'll be taking place towards the end of the month to sort of wrap up pride because at the end of the day, I can talk, I can, I mean, this is a podcast as, as much as I interact with people on Instagram and I like to talk to you all, this is still me talking into a microphone and again, hoping that you guys are listening. One of the things that's really important for me throughout this month. And one of the things I hope I hit in every episode is that we need to be interacting with queer folk around the world, both as learners of languages and trying to find other queer folk who are learning our languages or whose languages we are learning, as well as just supporting each other. And so one of the things that Marissa and I were talking about that we really want to do is some sort of way to have queer folk to connect. And so this is something that will be coming up later this month. Please stay tuned. Please, please be involved as much as you can. And yeah, uh, for now, that's it. Goodbye.